And I've just been excited very recently to, uh, to hear about a, a church in uh, Puerto Rico, a church that's kind of smaller than ours. And God just started, this, was last, started, this started happening last year. God just started doing some amazing things, some real spectacular signs and wonders in this church, in a very small church. Suddenly, oil started dripping from the roof. And then the Bible that was kept on the lectern on the pulpit here, oil started just flowing out of the Bible. It went on continuous for one month, the smell of rose, and then it stopped. And then uh, after a period of month, one month, it started again, but with a different smell. And they were just, it was just continuously flowing. And they're just collecting it in, in jars. And, uh, you know, it just happened. The pastor would lift the Bible, squeeze it, and all will just keep coming. And then after that, and that continued. And along with that, gemstones started falling in the service on people as they were worshiping God. This is not made up. It's real. Right? It's happening in our day, in our time. And they've collected more than 1,200, more than that, gemstones. In, now, they don't go and sell it to make money. But they'll be collecting it, and now they got, took some of them to be tested by these jewelers. And they asked, and they, they, this is perfect. They're cutting these diamonds. Some of them are diamonds of different colors. And this, you don't find these kinds of diamonds on the earth, was the response. So God is doing some amazing things in our day. Amen? It's happening. So this morning, I want to title my message, When God Does Something New. When God Does Something New. And really, I want to challenge us this morning to be ready for new things that God wants to do, or that God is doing. Amen? To be ready for new things. What will our response be when we see God do new things in our lives personally and in His church, among His people? How will we respond? I mean, what would you do if you were in that church and oil was falling down on you? What would you do? If you were in the church and gemstones were falling down, when God does something new, how would you respond? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says this, that, you know, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9, King Solomon said, That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9. He says there's nothing new under the sun. And that is true because... What may be new to us in our day, in our time, is really not new to God. It's something is already done. I can at least, I can think of at least two other occasions in the Bible when God supernaturally multiplied oil on the earth. So that time he did it in a jar. Now he's doing it out of a Bible or out of the ceiling. What does it matter to God? Amen. So really there's nothing new. You know, God's done these kinds of things before. There's really nothing new under the sun. But it's new to us. In the book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter, chapter, the 19th verse. Isaiah 43 and verse 19. The Lord says, Behold, I will do a new thing. So God is saying, you know, I'm going to do a new thing. He's speaking to His people. He's saying, I'm going to do a new thing. Now it's going to spring forth and you'll know it. I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. He said, I'm going to do a new thing. So God is in the habit of doing new things. Amen. He's not a stale God. He does new, fresh things. He says, I will do a new thing. You're going to know it. It's going to spring up. Amen. The important thing is how are we going to respond when we see God do new things in our midst. I want to go to Acts chapter 2. So if you go with me to Acts chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 to 13, just to see the kind of response good devout religious people have 
when God releases a new thing. Acts 2 verses 1 to 13. This is the day of Pentecost that you and I are very familiar with. Acts 2 verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. I want to highlight this in verse 5. Jews who were devout men. That means these Jewish people who were in Jerusalem at that time, they were very devout. They were very religious. I mean, they were following Judaism very strictly. They were not just casual people. They were very religious, devout men. And suddenly in their midst, God is doing a new thing. He's doing a new thing. Now these were religious people. Not, they were not strangers to God and strangers to worshiping the God of the Bible. They were, they were very religious. But now look at what, the rea- what is their reaction when God does a new thing. Verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. They were confused because everyone heard them speak. In their own language. So the first kind of reaction you're getting from these devout religious people is when God is doing a new thing, the Spirit of God is moving like a rushing mighty wind, tongues of fire descended. These people are praying in new tongues. What is their response? They're confused. They don't know whether to say this is of God or this is of the devil. They're confused. You don't know. Is it God? Is it the devil? Next kind of response. Verse 7. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? So here's the second response. They marveled. They were amazed and marveled. They said, you know, this is really spectacular. This is really otherworldly. This is really beyond us. It has to be God. It is, it is really supernatural. They marveled and were amazed. Second kind of reaction. You skip down to verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? So third kind of reaction, perplexed, meaning, hey, this doesn't fit our reasoning. It doesn't fit our logical thinking. We're perplexed. What does this mean? So they go from being confused. Some of them are confused. They don't know whether this is of God or not of God. Some are marvel. They're amazed. They marvel at this. Some are perplexed. How does this work? They're trying to figure this out. How does this work? How could these people be speaking in all these languages? No, what's, what's, what's the mechanism? What's making it happen? They're perplexed. And the last kind of response, the next verse. Others mocking said they are full of new wine. That's, that's really sad. Others were mocking, criticizing, pointing finger. Say, no, 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 no. These guys are just drunk. That's all. This really isn't of God. You know, this is not a new thing God is doing. These guys are just drunk. They were mocking. So four different kinds of response you get from devout people when God is doing a new thing. Are you all with me this morning? My question is, you know, what is going to, our response going to be when we see God doing something new? Let's look at some more examples in the Bible. You know, think about Saul and his encounter with Jesus Christ. Saul was a devout Jew, highly educated in Judaism, a very great scholar, a very religious man. And yet... When Jesus came on the scene, he couldn't accept it. 
Is that right? He couldn't accept it. In fact, he said, this is not of God. And he started persecuting those who believed in Jesus Christ. Couldn't accept the new thing God was doing. Until he had a personal encounter with Jesus, then he realized this is truly of God. And this is what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Timothy 1, 13, Saul said, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So even learned, educated, devout people can be ignorant and in unbelief when it comes to the new thing God is doing. Are you with me? So many of us look at, you know, what does scholar so-and-so say about this new thing God is doing? Be careful because scholar so-and-so could be ignorant and in unbelief when it comes to the new thing God is doing. Amen. It happened to Paul or Saul at that time. Think about Peter. When Peter was following Jesus, Jesus gave the commission in Matthew 10, 5 and 6. He said, Peter and his disciples, go only to Israel. Don't go to the, uh, to the Samaritans. Don't go to the Gentiles. That was in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. That was the first instruction. Go only to the house of Israel. But before he ascended, Jesus said, go into the whole world. But Peter was, sti was still stuck with the first instruction. Go to Israel. But Jesus changed. A new thing. Go to the whole world. And Peter still didn't get it until in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 onwards. One afternoon, Peter's up on the rooftop. He's praying. You know, he must be praying in tongues. And suddenly, there's a blanket or a bed sheet that comes down from heaven. He sees a vision. A bed sheet coming down. All kinds of animals on it. And the Lord speaks and says, Peter, arise, kill, and eat. He says, God, that cannot be God. How could God violate my uh, Jewish upbringing? All this while I'm a Jew. I'm not supposed to eat these kind of animals. Could it be the same God speaking to me and saying, Peter, rise, kill and eat. So God has to repeat it two more times. Three times God speaks to him. Peter, arise, kill and eat. It really shook his upbringing. Shook whatever he had believed so far. But this was a message to Peter saying, Peter, it's time to take the gospel to the Gentiles. God was doing something new. And Peter had to adjust, adapt quickly to what God was doing. Amen. I, uh, I enjoy reading church history. I like to read church history. I'm just getting more and more interested in church history. And uh, it's, so, it's so valuable, it's so important to know church history because we can learn lessons from history. We can see the mistakes they made and we can become wise not to repeat those mistakes. Uh, when we look at church history, it also inspires us because when we know what God did then, we know that God can do it again. Amen. So it's really good to know church history and, and, and understand uh, what has taken place in the past. And uh, history also enables us to accurately interpret the present. If you know history, then you are able to accurately interpret what God is doing today. Rather than just trying to see today within the, with the small window of information that we have right now. If we know the history, we know exactly what God is doing. It allows us to interpret things correctly. So I want, to, I, want us to just I want to take us back into time and just show us, you know, when God did something new, how did people respond in history? We've looked at some things from the Bible, but let's look at some things from church history. Now, we all know about Martin Luther and uh, the Reformation that took place because of his stand for Jesus and the birth of the Protestant movement. But really, about a hundred years before Martin Luther was a man named John Huss. 
He lived in the 14th century, that is between 1373 and 1450, or 1415. This was 100 years before Martin Luther. And he was a professor at the University of Prague, and he was a pastor of the Bethlehem Chapel, which was one of the most influential churches in Prague at his time. 100 years before Martin Luther, John Huss, in his church, preached justification by faith. He preached the final authority of Scripture, saying this is what we must give account to. 100 years before Martin Luther. But what happened to John Huss? As soon as he started preaching this, he, he angered the Catholic Church. And John Huss was burnt alive at the stake as an heretic in 1413. Burnt alive for preaching that we are justified by faith in Christ and for preaching that the Bible is the final authority. 100 years before Martin Luther. Today you and I, you know, don't even stop to question or think, are we really justified by faith? No, that's it. We have faith in Jesus, we're saved. 100 years later, Martin Luther rises up. He was a priest and a theologian. He brings his uh, 99, uh, 95, sorry, 95 thesis to the door of... Uh, the church in Wittenberg, Germany, he nails it over there on the door. And that challenges the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And, 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 and that births a mighty movement that you and I are part of. You and I are sitting here because of what he did at that time. October 31st, 1517. And essentially what he concluded was, he said the same thing. He concluded the scripture as final authority. He said salvation is by faith alone and not by the rituals of the, of the church. He opposed the selling of indulgences. So the Catholic Church was, was selling indulgences, meaning licenses to sin. You want to sin five times, you pay so much money, we'll give you a license to sin five times. So these were the kind of things that Martin stood up and he opposed. But as you and I know, he was sent out of the Catholic Church. And about the same time, there was another man whose name was Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, Switzerland, the same time as Martin Luther. He rose up in Switzerland and he said the same thing. And these two men were reformers, brought about the Reformation, brought in a new thing into the church. Was it new? It wasn't new because it was already in the Bible. But yet it was a new thing in the church. A restoration, a release of a new move of God in the church. Are you all with me? And yet they had to pay a price for it. They were sent out. I want us to understand that whenever God did something new, history shows us so clearly there are many who will reject it. Many will not be able to understand what, it, what is the new thing God is doing? The interesting thing about Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli is this, that they did not have the theology perfect. They were in error in some areas. So although they preached justification by faith and uh, uh, the authority, final authority of scriptures, they were theologically incorrect in some areas. For example, you know, they were called halfway men in their time because although they came out of the Catholic Church, they still adapted some of the practices from the Catholic Church. For example, they continued with the mass and the liturgy of the Catholic Church. They continued with, in, with infant baptism, which today you and I would not accept. They did not oppose the pulling down of images. In fact, they agreed with the Roman Catholic Church to stop the pulling down of the images of, of idols that were being worshipped. And one of the, probably the gravest things that Martin Luther was guilty of was promoting cessationalism, which is, he said, miracles were stopped, miracles ended with the apostles. And today, many, that still continues in some circles. So, was Martin Luther 100% theologically correct? Absolutely not. But he was right when it came to the revelation God gave him. So, do we discard Martin Luther just because of some of errors in his 
theology. Do we? We don't. We still consider him as, our reform, as a reformer. Are you all with me this morning? So the point I'm saying is this, that when God releases something new through somebody, it doesn't mean they're 100% perfect. But we must receive the new thing that God is releasing through them. Martin Luther was not perfect. And in his day, they rose up a new movement called the Anabaptists. These were people who said, Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli are halfway men. We're going to go full way. We're going to be like the New Testament church. They were called Anabaptists because the word Anabaptist simply means rebaptism. And they said, we will not accept infant baptism. We will not accept the mass of the Roman Catholic Church. We will not accept the worship of idols. We want to be exactly like the New Testament church. And they were persecuted by the Catholic Church and by the Reformed Protestants. So while Martin Luther said the priesthood of all believers, the Anabaptists said priesthood of all believers and the prophethood of all believers, we believe that all believers must do the work of the ministry. Have you by any chance heard it somewhere else? Maybe in all people's church, where we say every believer is a minister? It's nothing new. The Anabaptists did the same thing. And they would meet in homes and all places like that where they would encourage every believer to, uh, to believe God for the gifts and minister to one another. And they were persecuted for that. Their lives were re- at risk for believing that truth and saying, we want to be like the New Testament church. Amen. So today when we say, let us be like the New Testament church where every believer is a minister, we're not doing anything new. Amen. And thank God we are not being persecuted for it. You know, we don't be perfect, but those people had to give their lives for standing up for rediscovering a truth that was already in the Word of God. Now let's talk about the Pentecostal movement. You know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues. There, was, there were spurts here and there of people uh, moving in that, but the major change came when a man named Edward Irving, in the, he was born in 1792, and, he, and 1830, in the 1830s is when he really had impact. So um, Edward Irving was a highly educated man. At the age of 16, he received his MA degree. And he was appointed as a pastor of uh, a church. This was in Scotland. Uh, He was appointed pastor of a church there in Scotland. And he had a deep passion to bring the church back into the gifts of the spirits. So he stood up in his church, and his church really exploded. It just kept growing. They got rid of the old building. They built a new building called the Regent Church. I think it is um, the... uh, Regent Square Church in Scotland, uh, and he built a huge building. Lots of people coming, very noble people, always elite people were coming to his church. It really was a really strong minister of God. And he stood up in his congregation and he preached two things. He preached that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. That every believer can expect to flow in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, can pray in tongues and expect the other gifts. And a few people in his congregation started receiving tongues and started praying in tongues. And he stood up and he also preached that Jesus lived his life empowered by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus is a prototype of what you and I should be. That we too, by the Holy Spirit, can walk as Christ walked. Now today, these two truths are just accepted worldwide. But you know what happened to Edward Irving when he stood up in his church and preached that? And people started receiving, a few of them started praying in tongues. History records that on on the 4th of May, 1831, Edward Irving was locked out of his church. He was called by the, uh, by the leadership of the Church of Scotland, and they tried him, they pronounced him a heretic, and they sent him out. That was the price he paid to stand up and say, the gifts of the Spirit are for believers. Today we preach it. Sometimes some of us don't even bother about it. 
But that was a price that Edward Irving paid. He went out and, he, you know, he started a small work on his own, but he died soon after that at the, age of, at the young age of 42. He died. But he made a mark because 70 years after the Edward Irving began to preach that, 70 years, in 1906, God released a mighty move, a mighty outpouring called the Azusa Street Revival, which many consider the birth of the Pentecostal movement that spread all over the world. But there is a history even to that. There was a black preacher, his name was William Seymour. He attended a short-term Bible school run by Charles Perham in Kansas. And William Seymour could not sit in the Bible class, in the, in the class, because it was meant only for white people. He had to sit in a separate room by himself and listen to the lectures. He could not sit for the white people. That's how he attended Bible class. How would you like to go through Bible school like that? But once he finished his training, his short-term training, I think it was about six months, he got a, an, a, an appointment with a church in California. So he said, well, I got my first job right after college. So he goes all the way to California. Sunday morning, he preaches in that church. He comes back Sunday evening, and he is locked out of that church. How many pastors have you known who've lasted only one sermon in a church? William Seymour, first job, lasted for one sermon. That was it. He was locked out, sent out, because he spoke on the Holy Spirit. But you can't stop God. Some, a family welcomed him into their home. And in the house, a mighty outpouring of God broke out. People were laughing, slain in the spirit, praying in tongues. And it just caught fire. They moved to a bigger place on Azusa Street. And it just spread. People from around the world came to Azusa Street to receive what was called the Pentecostal experience. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit and praying in tongues. Today, it spread all over the world. You and I enjoy it today. But there was a price that was paid. A pastor preached only one sermon in his church. Edward Irving locked out of his own church for standing up for the gifts of the Spirit. The point I'm trying to get across to you and me is this. That when God is releasing something new on the earth, it is not always welcomed by even the devout people of that day. People have paid a price for the truths you and I take for granted. Amen. We, you and I can sit on any time we want. We can hear about the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. We take it all for granted. But there have been men who have paid a great price to restore it back to the body of Christ. There's one thing you and I can be sure of. That in our day, in our lifetime, God is going to do many new things. You can be assured of that. The next 30 years, next 40 years, next 50 years, however long you're going to be here, we're going to be here. God is going to do many, many, many new things. There are going to be fresh insights from the Word of God that come to us. There are going to be new demonstrations, new workings of God released in our midst. The question I want to challenge you and me is this. How will you and I respond when God does something new? Will we remain confused? Somebody asks you, what do you think about it? You say, I don't know. I don't know if it's a God. I don't know. Which side are you? I don't know. Confused. Are you going to be perplexed? See, it's not logical. It doesn't fit into my thinking. I can't figure this out. I can't explain it. And you remain like that because you, it doesn't fit into your logical thinking. Or are you going to mock it, which is very sad. That's not of God. That's of the devil. That can't be God. You know, God doesn't work like that. Or are you going to be one of those who say, God, this is God. I'm going to go with it. Amen. I believe that God wants to do new things in your life personally. 
You know, we, we think, you know, God only works in my life a certain way. You know, this is my upbringing. I've been brought up in this kind of a tradition. Uh, this is the way I believe God's supposed to be. And God steps and says, can I do a new thing in your life? In your life. Can I do a new thing in your life? And you say, excuse me, God, I'm a devout Jew. <laughs> I've been brought up this way. I've decided the future, my future is going to be like this. And this is the path I've decided to go. And God says, can I do something new? Because the Bible says, things that eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard, which hasn't entered the heart of man, such things God has prepared for those who love Him. Amen. So God's going to step into your life and say, can I do something new? Things that your eyes have not seen, which your ears have not heard, which you haven't even thought of. Can I release something new in your life? What would you say? God, it doesn't fit my theology, God. You're not supposed to be doing that. But I don't see anybody else doing that. Why should I be the first one? I mean, we can make up all kinds of excuses. But I want to invite you and me this morning to come to a place where you say, God, I'm totally open to every new thing you want to release in my life. I'm totally open. I will not fight it. I will not, you know, confu be confused. You know, there, of course, you need to test when God's doing everything that God releases will glorify His name, will exalt Jesus Christ, will uh, have a positive impact on people's lives. Of course, you test it and you know that this is what it's going to do. It's going to glorify Jesus. Lives are going to be saved. So when you know God is doing something new, welcome it. And I also want to impress on you that God is going to do many new things in the church. Amen. In His body worldwide. You know, the way we worship God is going to change. Now we went from hymn books to projectors. And some people found it so hard. How can I go to a church that has no hymn books? That's not a church. Where is the steeple? Where is the stained glass? This is not church. God was doing something new. So, some of us decided to go with what God was doing. We decided, you know, okay, projector is okay. No stained glass is okay. No steeple is okay. But in our style of worship, God was going to release something. In fact, He's already started releasing new things in the body around the world. What we're seeing now is that more and more, God is moving His body more and more to spontaneous worship. It's nice to see the words on the, on the screen or on the wall. Oh, the screen there. It's nice to see that and sing along. But the new thing God's releasing in His church is prophetic worship. Spontaneous, out of the heart, live from the Spirit, worship to heaven. So forget hymn books. Forget projectors. You come in, the worship leader says, sing a new song. Just worship. You're saying, what should I sing? Sing from your heart. But do you realize it's not a new thing? It's what the early church did. They didn't have hymn books and no projectors for sure. So what did they do? They sang from their heart the song of the Lord. So we're not doing something new. It's new for us. But hey, it's already been done. Amen. So next time you come to worship God and, you know, we just say, you know, just worship from your heart. Just sing a song. And they say, come on, listen to the Spirit. Hear from the Spirit and sing it to the Lord. You say, how could that cannot be church? I need projector. I need the lyrics. Only then I can worship God. What is this new thing you're saying? I must worship from my heart. I must sing my own song. I'm not a songwriter. So don't fight it. Go with it. Get in with it. Say, Holy Spirit, give me a new song. Help me to worship God with freshness from the depths of my being. Help me just adore God and behold His beauty. And let a new song rise from my heart. Amen. It might be new for us, but the early church already did it. Amen. God's doing a new thing. And then don't get upset. When we stand up and say, every believer is going to be a minister. So, no, no, I thought only pastor is going to be a minister, you know. 
No, 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 no. Every believer is a minister. We want everyone equipped in the spirit to flow in the gifts, to, blow, to move in the prophetic, to be apostolic. We want everybody like this. Say, how can I? This can't be church. I'm used to church where I just go and sit and receive. But God's doing a new thing. He's actually bringing us back to the Bible. The Bible says that saints will be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So it's really not new. The early church was like that. The Anabaptists contended for it. And we are contending it for, it for it in our day and our time. Where every believer is a minister. Amen. Where every believer is trained in the spirit. Every believer is trained in the prophetic. Every believer is released in the apostolic. It, moving in that. So no, no, pastor, don't push me like that. I'll just come attend church on Sundays and go. No, you can't be like that. You have to be a minister. No, no, no. This is not a nice church. They're forcing us all to be ministers. Relax. God's doing a new thing. Get in with it. Amen. You know, and we've gone from wearing cloaks to some casual clothes, and who knows what will happen. <laughs> Maybe we come in jeans, you know. But it's not new. Because do you think on the day of Pentecost, Peter was wearing a robe? I think he just stood up with whatever clothes he was wearing. And he preached. Would you have gotten offended because you didn't see him preaching in the white robe? So we're not doing anything new. We're just going back to the days of Peter, James, and John. They just preached in the clothes they wore. Amen. Nothing new. Just going back to what was already taking place. But then how we respond, how we respond to the new things is so important. God will step into your world and begin to adjust your theology. And you say, God, that doesn't fit. It's okay. It's a new insight in the word of God. Come on, receive it. Amen. New moves of the spirit. New ways that God is working. Now think about the Lakeland outpouring. Many people had questions concerning it. There are some who mock it. Well, it happened in Peter's day. It's happening now. They call it all kinds of things, all kinds of names. There are some who are confused. Is it of God? Is it not of God? I don't know. I'll just stay here. Stay confused. Some are perplexed. How can a man with tattoos, wears black t-shirt, God piercings, how can God use a man like that? It doesn't fit my thinking. Perplexed. Don't you know Leviticus 19 chapter says, you will not make any tattoos on your body and no piercings. Yes, I do. But the same chapter also says, you will not hate anybody. Really, go read Leviticus 19. Don't hate anybody. So, what's more important to you? Tattoos on your body or hate in your hearts? Yeah? So, God's doing a new thing. The pastor of this church in Puerto Rico, some of you may never go to his church. Why? Because for about 13 years, he was a homosexual. And for 13 years, he was a professional transvestite. Is that what it's called? Right? And God delivered him out of that. And today he's pastoring a church where the glory of God is being released with holy oil and gems falling on the stone. Now, would you get offended because the pastor of your church was 13 years a homosexual and a professional transvestite? You say, no, I'll get the homosexual spirits. <laughs> I would never go to that kind of a church. Well, do you believe in the power of the blood of Jesus? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus can take a homosexual and make him an instrument of God's glory? It's a new thing. So get along with it. Go with it. Amen. Yeah, let's give God praise. Let's welcome what God is doing in our day. Amen. I want to challenge us. God is going to do more and more new things that will totally ruin our theology, that will totally ruin our upbringing, that will totally ruin all our plans, that will totally ruin everything about us, and He will say, hello, I'm God. 
Let's be ready. Let's stand up.